Dear church family, our text for this morning is a clear and unmistakable gospel declaration from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to begin this morning by giving one of the most remarkable illustrations ever given of this beatitude. And that is Christ's parable of the rich man and of Lazarus. Children, you probably remember the story quite well. The poor man, Lazarus, spent his days and his nights begging at the gate of the rich man, hoping for even a crumb to be thrown from the dining room, if you will, of the rich man to his feet. Lazarus's health was terrible, covered in sores. The dogs came and licked them. A miserable state for Lazarus. And eventually, in all of his poverty and hunger and sadness and sickness, Lazarus passed away. And on earth, as during his life, in his death, likely nobody noticed. Perhaps the servants noticed that the beggar was finally gone from the gate. But in heaven, all of heaven paid attention. We read there that the angels came and carried Lazarus, emissaries of honor, carried Lazarus into Abraham's bosom, symbolic of a place of blessing, a place of honor, a place of riches, a place of comfort. What a change for Lazarus. Meanwhile, on earth, the rich man carries on. A life of wealth, a life of comfort, a life of pride. But in process of time, the rich man dies too. And he's buried. An act of honor that the beggar didn't receive. People noticed his death on earth. But what happens after that? Children, what happens to the rich man? He's thrown into the pit of hell. And there we read in that passage that he lifts up his eyes in torment. And he sees Lazarus, that poor beggar seated in Abraham's bosom. And he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But what's Abraham's response? Son, 
remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. What a situation for the rich man. On earth, he had wealth. He had comfort. He had everything he could have wanted. He was, in his heart, clearly a proud man. The very opposite of what we read about in our text. Not poor in spirit. But what a blessed place for Lazarus. What a happy place. What a remarkable change for this poor, miserable beggar. And what an illustration of our text. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we begin to look at this beatitude, we will see this played out in Christ's words. Now Christ gives eight beatitudes, as I've already mentioned in our text. Eight beatitudes. The first four look at the, the true Christian's relationship with God. The second four look at the true Christian's relationship with his neighbor. And together they paint this portrait. They paint a portrait of what a true Christian looks like. And it's significant as we come to this first beatitude that Christ starts where he starts. He doesn't start with blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He doesn't start with blessed are the meek. Doesn't start with blessed are those who mourn. He starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Why does Christ start here? Well, Christ starts here, at least in part, to teach us that poverty of spirit, poorness of spirit, is the normal beginning point of a sinner's journey to true happiness, to true blessedness in Christ. It's the normal beginning point. You won't normally mourn over your sin. You won't normally hunger and thirst after Christ unless you first realize that you are spiritually destitute before God. Think about an example from that story we just spoke of, Lazarus. Lazarus would not have begged for food unless he had first realized that he was lacking food, that he was spiritually or physically poor. And it's precisely the same way with us normally. That we do not hunger and thirst after Christ until we first recognize to some degree that we are spiritually poor. Now having said that, having said that, this doesn't mean that this is always the case in the experiences of God's people. Some people if you speak with them from their youth, were so touched by the love of God in Christ Jesus that they don't remember that much about 
their poverty of spirit before coming to Christ. They always came to Christ. And this also doesn't mean that Christ is making this pattern in the Beatitudes a prescriptive pattern. He's not saying that this is how things must go. He must, he's not saying that he is forbidding us to come to God and himself until we experience a certain amount of poverty of spirit. In fact, the very opposite is true. God commands us to come to him no matter what we are feeling. Because we are all spiritually poor. We are all spiritually destitute. Whether we feel it or not. In fact, for some of us, it's when we began to come to Christ that we began to realize truly the depth of our spiritual poverty. But these things don't remove the fact that the normal pattern the normal experience in the Christian life is to first recognize that we are spiritually needy and then to come and be filled in Christ. Matthew Henry, speaking on this passage, put it this way. He said, The foundation of all other graces is laid in humility. Or J.C. Ryle put it this way, Humility is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. And so this is where Christ begins with this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a striking statement, isn't it? This this beatitude. It's a remarkable statement. And some of us upon reading it might actually be somewhat confused. How does it make any sense to say that someone is blessed or happy because they recognize that they are poor, spiritually poor. How does that come together? Wouldn't it make someone tremendously unhappy to recognize that they are spiritually poor? Let me give you an example. Let's say tomorrow you find out that you are bankrupt. Does that make you happy or sad? I expect it would make you quite unhappy. But then would it not also make you unhappy to find out that you are spiritually bankrupt? How does this make sense? How can Christ say, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit? Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. How can Christ say this? Well, let's begin to examine some of the pieces of this beatitude in order to come to an answer. First, look at that word which Christ begins with. The word he begins all of the eight Beatitudes with. Children, do you see that word there in verse 3? What's the first word there in the sentence? It's blessed. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we need to understand this word blessed in the Old Testament context that it's written in. The whole New Testament, of course, is founded upon the Old Testament. It's informed by the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. But this Sermon on the Mount, which many rightly understand to be a re-giving, an exposition of the law of Moses, is particularly founded upon the Old Testament. You can't 
understand the Beatitudes. You can't understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding something of the Old Testament. And so let's take this word blessed and go back to the Old Testament. What did this word mean in the Old Testament? Well, there were two words in the Old Testament for blessed. Two main words. One was a verb. One was a verb. Children, what does a verb do? A verb is an action. A verb is doing something. That verb blessed speaks of the action of someone blessing someone else. Giving a blessing upon someone. Number six, we have the ironic blessing, which oftentimes we end the service with. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. That's the verb, the action of blessing. And that's something often God does to us. He blesses us. But then there's a second word, and it's an adjective. The adjective of blessed. This is the picture of someone looking at someone else sitting beside them or someone down the street and saying, that person is a blessed person. That person is a happy person. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Happy is the man who walks in God's paths. Two words, a verb and an adjective. And in the Old Testament, those often work together like this. When God brought his blessing upon someone, the verb, other people looked at that person and said, they are blessed, they are happy. And here in our text today, Christ is actually using the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew adjective for blessed. The person looking at someone and saying, you are blessed, you are happy. Christ is saying, this person, this person is blessed. This person is happy if you are poor in spirit. But at the same time, with the Old Testament context, he's also referencing the blessing of God which comes on that person. You cannot be a happy person unless you have received the blessing from God. And we need to realize that the audience who was standing or perhaps sitting around Jesus Christ as they heard these words, the disciples and then also the broader multitude, were primarily a Jewish audience primarily a Jewish audience rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And the Jews knew, they knew, like the back of their hand, what it meant to be blessed. In fact, when a Jew heard the word blessed or blessing, it would have been almost an automatic reflex to go back to Abraham and the Lord's blessing of Abraham or to go back to the ironic blessing I just referenced and, and think about that. Or even more to go back to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal when Israel entered into Israel and you read about it in Deuteronomy of the blessings and the cursings that were set before them again and again and again. You obey and you will be blessed. You disobey and you will be cursed. Those realities rang like a bell in the minds of all Jews even in Jesus' day. And if you go back to some of those passages, if you go back to that first declaration of covenant blessings and cursings on Mount Ebal and Gerizim as Israel entered the promised land, you read a very good example of what it means to be blessed. All these blessings, we read, 
shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall, thy, shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Blessed shalt thou be in all of your life. And not just physically, also spiritually. The ironic blessing that I just referenced. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And that word peace is the word Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Some of you will have heard that word. It doesn't just refer to outward peace. Not just physical, material blessings. It refers to relational peace. Spiritual peace. A holistic peace. And so for the Jews to hear this declaration, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, just didn't make sense. How could you put happy alongside poverty? How could you be happy but poor, spiritually or physically? There seemed to be a contradiction here. What is Christ saying when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, we need to go back again to the Old Testament and examine what Christ is speaking of when he's speaking about the poor in spirit. If you've read through the Old Testament regularly or recently, you will certainly have noticed, if you were paying attention, that God has a great compassion, a peculiar attention and grace towards those who are poor. And the poor in the Old Testament were often those who were beggars or very near to beggars, the tramps of their culture, the scavengers, lived on the outskirts of society. These were people who had come to an end in themselves. They no longer had resources in themselves to get what they needed, and so they had to go to someone else to receive what they needed to live. But God had compassion towards them. And the Old Testament is full of it. You go to the books of the law, what do you read there? Commands everywhere. To the rich, to the average of society. Take care of the poor. Take care of the poor. Don't be harsh towards them. Be merciful towards them. God had a peculiar care for the poor. Then you come to the Psalms. And you hear again and again and again that God will hear the cry of who? The poor. And then you come to the prophets. And what do you read? The prophets come to the people of Israel and their sin and they say, be careful. Be careful that you do not oppress the poor. If you oppress the poor, God will take judgment 
on you. And so God had a remarkable compassion for the poor. And you come to the New Testament. And Jesus Christ is the perfect manifestation of the Father. The perfect declaration of who God is. Comes and he does the exact same thing. Touching lepers who you couldn't touch. Eating meals with sinners and outcasts. Even at times living a life of practical homelessness. Having not so much as a stone upon which to lay his head. In fact, Christ's compassion for the poor was so great that one of the principles of the kingdom of heaven that he laid out before his disciples, that he wanted ingrained in their minds, was this. When thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. What a counter-cultural expression of the kingdom of God. God had a great compassion for those who were poor. And yet this reality doesn't actually go right to the heart of Christ's statement here, does it? We know, don't we, that there were many poor in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament who were outwardly poor, but inwardly they were full of pride. And we have it today as well. Outwardly poor, but inwardly rejecting God. Unwilling to accept the grace of God towards them in Christ Jesus. And so Christ goes even deeper. He goes even deeper. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they are spiritual beggars before the throne of God. Blessed are those who confess that they are bankrupt before God spiritually. Blessed are those who recognize that they have no payment that they can bring to God in exchange for what they must have from Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Martin Luther, on his deathbed, wrote out a note. You can find this online later. At the very end of that note, the last written record we have from him, he writes this statement. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. Why? How could Martin Luther say that? What a career he had in the kingdom of God. From tiny countryside churches to the great cathedrals of Europe, bringing the word of God, seeing the gospel spread across the country, a great revival occurring. How does he end his life? We are beggars. We are beggars. This is true. Why? Because he had been gripped by this statement of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is this your spirit this morning? Are you a spiritual beggar before God? 
Are you on your knees waiting for the scraps from the table of God to feed your soul? Have you been emptied? Have you been emptied of your own righteousness? Do you come before God with empty hands? Empty hands saying, Lord, I I have nothing. I'm a beggar before your throne. Christ says, blessed. Happy are the poor in spirit. What a statement. And maybe some of you here, like many of the Jews in Christ's day, are still troubled by this statement as you think it through. You ask again, what is it that is blessed? What is it that is happy about being poor in spirit? Why is it a good thing to be called spiritually destitute? Why would Christ say I'm happy if I'm a spiritual beggar who has nothing? And this is actually a good question to ask. This is a good question to ask. Why? Because if you look through Scripture, you will discover that our happiness is not found simply in knowing that we are miserable, simply in knowing that we are spiritual beggars. Our happiness is found when that spiritual poverty drives us to Christ. That's what makes happy. That's what makes us blessed to be driven to Jesus Christ. That's why Christ finishes the beatitude this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit because it drives them to Christ from whom they receive all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And the obvious application here is this. To rest in your state of misery, to rest in the fact that you know that you are miserable, is not enough. You are not blessed just because you know that you are miserable in your sin. You are blessed when you come to Christ. That's happiness. That's true blessedness. And so if you're in a place today where God has convicted you of your sin and you think you can just stay there in that conviction, oh no, you must come to Christ. He is the fullness of joy. He is true blessedness. There is no happiness without Jesus Christ. Now let's put ourselves for a minute back into the shoes of these Jews as they're listening to Christ on that mountainside in Galilee. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this would have been a strange thing indeed for the Jews to hear. How could it be that the poor in spirit, the spiritually poor, the spiritual beggars, would be the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Wasn't it the righteous, the strong, the rich, 
who would be the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven? That's the question they would have been asking. Why? Why would the Jews have asked that question? Because they had forgotten. They had forgotten the gospel principle running all through the Old Testament. And that is that man in himself is utterly condemned before God. Utterly destitute. They had forgotten that they were poor. And so they read passages like Psalm 1 that I referenced earlier. Blessed. There's that word. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And they said, that's me. That's us, Lord. We are blessed because we do this. We delight in the law of the Lord. We and ourselves have done this, and therefore we are blessed. Or Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. And they said, that's us too. That's us too. We've been pure. We've kept the law. We are righteous. And therefore, aren't we blessed? Not the poor in spirit people? But you see, they had forgotten. And sometimes we forget too. That the foundation, the foundation of those two passages I just read is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the truly blessed man in Psalm 1. And we in him are blessed. It is Jesus Christ who ascends up, up into the hill of the Lord, into the holy place. He's the one who has pure hands. Not first us. It's us in Christ, as seen in Christ, and growing in Christ, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord. But they had forgotten that. They had forgotten. They had forgotten Psalm 130. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? They had forgotten Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. They'd forgotten Habakkuk 2 verse 4, a passage we all know. The just shall live by his faith. Implication in Christ. They'd forgotten these passages. And so in their mind, when they heard, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it was all wrong. It was all backwards. There was something very wrong in Christ's statement. They were righteous, and therefore the kingdom should have been theirs. The kingdom should have come to them. In their book, this is how it went. Blessed are those who can say with the Pharisee, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. That is the happy man. That is the blessed man. That is the kingdom-receiving man. Not the spiritually poor. You see, they didn't understand. 
They didn't understand that they were just like the church of Laodicea later on in Revelation, Revelation 3. The church that Christ said of them that they thought that they were rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's who they were, but they didn't understand it. And so Christ was teaching them that they were actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Christ was undermining their righteousness. He was stripping them of their own clothes of righteousness and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it may very well be that some even here today are just in that place with the Pharisees, stumbling over the teachings of Christ because all your life, You've been trying to live a righteous life before God, to please God on your own right, to justify yourselves before others. Yes, I'm not perfect, but I am a righteous man, and therefore I ought to be blessed by God. Dear friends, this is not the way to live. This leads to disaster. This leads to condemnation. If this is you, then Christ comes to you and he says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what do you do? What do you do? What would you have done if you were a Pharisee listening to Christ on that hillside in Galilee? What's the right reaction to this teaching of Christ? It's not to justify yourself. It's not to say, Lord, but I tried. It's to say, Lord, you're right. You're right. I am poor in spirit. I have nothing. I'm a spiritual beggar. I am empty before you. I can do nothing. I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm worse than the prodigal son. I'm a Pharisee. Oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, Lord, wash me from my sin. Lord, I'm a complete mess, spiritually speaking. Maybe on the outside I look good, Lord, but I'm a mess. I need, Lord, I need you. Save me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Fill me, Lord, with yourself. And you know the amazing thing? The amazing thing about yourself, about God, when you make that confession, when you make that plea up into the throne room of heaven, is that God hears you. God hears you. God listens to the cry of the poor, the poor in spirit. He loves to hear the cry of spiritual beggars. He hears them. And not only does he hear them, but he answers them. He answers them. This is the consistent character of God throughout all of Scripture, that he hears the cry of the poor. And so if you have cried out to God, you have seen yourself for who you are, empty before him, desperately in need of him, and you have cried out, Lord, fill me with yourself. Lord, please, 
For the sake of Christ, fill me with yourself. The Lord has heard your prayer. He hears your prayer and he will answer you. He will fill you with himself, with salvation, with Jesus Christ. Blessed, happy are you, poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. What a miracle. What a joy. Everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And him that knocketh, it shall be opened to you. That's the word of God. He will hear you when you cry to him. But if you sit here this, this morning and you want nothing to do with this, no thank you. You are fine by yourself. You're satisfied in your righteousness or your outward appearances or your current life or your social standing or whatever it is that keeps you away from Christ that you're satisfied in. We need to recognize something about the implications of Christ's statement here. In the Old Testament, wherever you read blessings, you also found cursings. Go back to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. There's the Mount of Blessing, but also the Mount of Cursing. And the implication of Christ's blessings here on this mountain is that there are also cursings for those who are not poor in spirit. Cursed are the rich in spirit, for theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. Cursed are the ones who have it all together. For theirs is not the salvation of Christ. Cursed are the spiritually rich people of this world. For theirs is the fire of hell forever, just like the rich man. The Apostle James, in James chapter 5, said it very well. And here he's speaking not just of material wealth. It's primarily a spiritual principle. He says, go to now. You rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is kept of you, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and being wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just. And he doth not resist you. Again, this is not primarily speaking of the rich materially, but those who spiritually oppress the poor. Those who justify themselves, but go to others and say, I will condemn you because you do not live up to my standards. I will condemn you because you do not obey the laws that I have made. Cursed are the rich in spirit. And what must we do 
if we are in this place. In Revelation 3 again, Christ comes to the church of Laodicea and he says this, I counsel thee, consider the mercy of this statement, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent. That is the cry of Christ to those who are spiritually rich in themselves. And no matter what position we are in here today, what is it that would keep us from obeying this command of Christ? To repent, to repent, to repent. The Apostle Paul says this, Behold, pay attention, look. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. You notice that? What does he say? Now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, I wonder sometimes when we wait to turn to Jesus Christ, when we wait to repent from our sins, what we are actually thinking. We don't know that the Lord will spare us even this night. Who here knows that? Not one of us. We don't know if the Lord will return tonight. No man knows the day or the hour. We don't know if tomorrow morning God will not choose to hand us over to our own sin, to hand us over to the natural deadness of our own hearts. Romans 1. So that we go deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. We may not wait to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. And so come. Come with David in Psalm 32. Say what he said if you're in this position of hardness. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah, pause. But then what does he say? How does he continue? I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And how does it finish? Period, end of psalm? No. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That is the gospel. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, what a God. What a God we serve. We are so unforgiving. 
But God, the moment our cry for forgiveness comes into his courts, he hands out that sheet of paper that says, pardoned, forgiven, clean, justified, declared righteous in the court of heaven. And so what can we do but come with empty hands and repent? Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are in a place of hardness towards this, remember also that Christ comes in mercy, but he also comes with stern words of mercy to you. In Psalm 2, we read these words, Be wise, be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed, there's that word again, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Flee to Christ. Don't wait. Do it today, not tomorrow. Now, some of you here, by God's amazing grace, have fled to Christ. You know what it is to be poor in spirit. You have tasted of the happiness of being filled with Christ. And yet, here today, you have perhaps a practical question. You say, as I live in this sin-filled world, as I live with my own sinful heart, as I live with all the troubles of death and sickness, how can I experience, how can I experience this blessedness of which Christ is speaking in this beatitude? How can I have this happiness in my own life? Well, the answer to this question is, in one sense, very simple. But it also takes a lifetime to properly live it out. But the answer is this. Faith in Christ's word. Faith in Christ's word. How do you bring the happiness of Christ to yourself? By believing in his word. Faith, if I can put it to you this way, imports It imports the happiness of heaven into our lives here on earth. It brings down the spiritual riches of God into our sinful, miserable lives. Faith in Christ's word. Faith accepts. Faith accepts as a sure thing, as a settled thing, that although this life is full of sin and misery, it's only a minute. It's only a short breath. It's only a grass before we turn the corner and paradise is unveiled before us. That's what faith does. That's how it brings happiness into our hearts. And faith accepts the fact that although we struggle here below, we've received the down payment of that kingdom even in our heart through the Holy Spirit. Faith accepts that and it rejoices in that. And then faith takes those realities and it, it goes to Christ in the means of grace. It goes to the word of God and it searches 
page after page and it, it finds the things of Christ and it rejoices in them and it believes them. It sings to Christ. It prays to Christ. And in so doing, it receives the true spiritual happiness of the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is, this is what happened for Paul and Silas as they were in that Philippian jail with their hands in the stocks, stretched out in pain. Singing! Singing! In the prison! Why? Because they trusted in Christ. They believed in the word of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of faith that Job had in the middle of all his misery. What does he say? Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And above all other examples in Scripture, you could name many, above all other examples, this was the kind of faith that Jesus Christ had, that Jesus Christ himself had. This was the kind of faith that permitted Christ to take that cursed, cursed cup and drain it all the way to the last bitter drinks. Hebrews 12 who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so faith is a hand that reaches into heaven and brings down the happiness of heaven into earth. And to put this all very practically for us here this morning, we need to admit something that we all struggle with. It doesn't matter who you are. We need to admit that true happiness is not found the way the world finds it. You will not find happiness if you, pa- if you travel the path of the world. It leads to misery. You won't find happiness by being the richest person on the block. You won't find happiness by being the best-looking person in your class. You won't find happiness by having the highest IQ. You won't find happiness by rising to the top of the totem pole of life. You will not. You will find happiness only by being spiritually poor, but then finding everything in Jesus Christ. And those who know this, those who have finally realized this, are those who can say with the hymnist these words, Riches I heed not, nor vain, empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, ruler of heaven, my treasure thou art. We need to remember something as we think about this happiness. We need to remember that this was not a cheaply purchased happiness. It was expensive beyond all cost. One of the greatest trials of Christ's passion here below was this 
poverty of, sp- of spirit that he experienced. The poverty of spirit that he had in his heart in order to purchase our happiness, our eternal blessedness. There was no one who was a spiritual homeless person, if I can put it this way to you, like Christ was. Far from his heavenly family, far from his heavenly home, down upon this miserable, dark, cold world. And there was no one who was a spiritual beggar like Christ was as he crawled in the garden on his knees, begging of God that if it were possible to remove this cup from him. And there was no one who was spiritually destitute like Christ as he hung upon the cursed cross and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why me, Lord? Spiritually poor, that we might be blessed. Paul puts it this way. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. But then, wonder of wonders, not only was Christ poor, poor in spirit, but he also was blessed and is blessed now above any other being in all of existence. He is the blessed person, the happy person, now in the kingdom of heaven. And so this beatitude in Matthew 5 verse 3 is ultimately found in its fulfillment in Christ himself. Blessed is Christ, for his is the kingdom of heaven. And if you turn the pages all the way to the, towards the end of Scripture, we actually discover a taste of this wonderful, wonderful blessedness of Christ. Revelation 5 records these words. And I beheld, I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And so this is the true fulfillment of this beatitude. This is the final fulfillment. Christ seated in perfect blessedness in heavenly places, and also we in him, by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God,